0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Duncan Macargo, a professor at the University of Copenhagen and a host on the Literature Channel. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by Bethany Hickok, who's a member of the English faculty at Williams College and the editor of Elizabeth Bishop and the Literary Archive, published by Lever Press. And this is an open access book, which means that you can go to the Lever Press site and download it and read it free of charge. Bethany, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Duncan. It's great to be here.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Bishop and her archive, and some of our listeners might not know that much about Elizabeth Bishop and her poetry. Could you tell us something about her life and her work?
1: Yeah, sure. Elizabeth Bishop was born in 1911, died in 1979. And she was a world traveler. So her poems center on geographic locations from north to south. So Mm -hmm. Nova Scotia. extremely important to her childhood. She lived in Key West for more than 10 years off and on. She traveled to Brazil and then lived there for more than a decade, really almost 20 years in Brazil. And then back to the United States, she's associated with the area in and around Boston. She was born in Western Massachusetts. And so her poetry is informed by her position as a world traveler. She's one of the most stunning poets of the 20th century, if not the most stunning poet of the mm-hmm. 20th century. I mean, her work is, and I don't say that just because I write on her a lot. She is right. amazing. I keep returning to her work and I'm stunned by the poetic mastery and skill. And one of the things I want to say about her that I think is really important is that She has wonderful, incredible description, great imagery. She has mastery of poetic form, villanelle, Sestina. If you think about her great Villanelle One Art, which begins, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So Mm -hmm. many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. So that sort of shows the skill of the poetry, the sense of humor, the intimacy. She invites the reader in. There's an early poem, Geronimo's House, where Geronimo, who's the character set in Key West, who's talking about his house. And at one point, the line says, come closer. And that is, to me, Mm what Bishop does to readers. And, you know, I was teaching Bishop when, when we went into the whole lockdown and Bishop was, she's the poet of loss for a lot of people, but also, but it's really not just about loss. It's about surviving loss. And my students, Bishop was a lifeline for us through the pandemic. Mm So I think that made me think about her in new ways teaching her during a pandemic she became the poet of the pandemic in many ways would you like me to say more
0: <laughs> you can always say more yes i mean i do get a sense from the book of this incredible sense of place or numerous places yes. where where bishop was north carolina comes into it as well and that was one yes. that you you didn't mention
1: that's right
0: there's an yeah. incredible evocation of landscape and cultures going on here. I mean, to give us a bit of the flavor of Bishop's writing, would you like to, you've already started (laughs) reading bits of poems, but would you like to read one of her poems as complete work?
1: Uh, Yes, I would. And I'll just say one more thing about, you mentioned place, as place is really important, and and the way that Bishop describes, she has extremely accurate descriptions of landscape Mm. and place, but also the kind of ethical questions. She's a very ethical poet. She thinks about questions of travel which is one of her great poems and Mm -hmm. you know is it right one of the lines is it right to be watching strangers in a play in this strangest of theaters so the question Mm -hmm. of traveler and traveler's relationship to others is and to the other is really important to her work so I'm going to read I think this poem characterizes a lot of aspects of Bishop that I like and I chose it because it's One of the more archival poems of Bishop's collection, since we're talking about Bishop in the archives, and it's called Poem. And let me just give you a a little background before I read it. It's based on a small painting that was sent to Bishop by one of her aunts, and it was painted by her great uncle, George Hutchinson, who was also the subject of large, bad picture. This is sometimes referred to as small, good picture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> poem. And anyway, George Hutchinson was actually a painter of some renown. So you'll hear aspects of this in this poem. He was born in Nova Scotia, but he left Nova Scotia at the age of 14 as a cabin boy and settled in London. He studied at the Royal Academy and he became an incredible painter and illustrator of some renown in London. He illustrated for Sherlock Holmes stories For Robert Louis Stevenson, Kipling. So he was well-known. And so, but this is the painting. and, And Bishop, this is an ekphrastic poem. So Bishop is looking at the painting and really doing a sort of art criticism of the painting, describing it. But then it moves into something different, which is characteristic of her poetry that helps us to think deeply about our place in the world. So I'm going to read this now. It's called Poem. About the size of an old-style dollar bill, American or Canadian, mostly the same whites, gray-greens, and steel grays, this little painting, a sketch for a larger one, has never earned any money in its life. Useless and free, it has spent 70 years as a minor family relic handed along collaterally to owners who looked at it sometimes or didn't bother to. It must be Nova Scotia. Only there does one see gabled wooden houses painted that awful shade of brown. The other houses, the bits that show, are white. Elm trees, low hills, a thin church steeple, that gray-blue wisp. Or is it? In the foreground, a water meadow with some tiny cows, two brush strokes each, but confidently cows, two minuscule white geese in the blue water, back-to-back, feeding. And a slanting stick. Up closer a wild iris, white and yellow, fresh squiggled from the tube. The air is fresh and cold. Cold early spring, clear as grey glass, a half inch of blue sky below the steel grey storm clouds. They were the artist's specialty. A speck like bird is flying to the left. Or is it a fly speck looking like a bird? Heavens! I recognize the place. I know it. It's behind, I can almost remember the farmer's name. His barn backed on that meadow. There it is, titanium white, one dab. The hint of steeple, filaments of brush hairs, barely there, must be the Presbyterian church. Would that be Miss Gillespie's house? Those particular geese and cows are naturally before my time. A sketch done in an hour, in one breath, once taken from a trunk and handed over. Would you like this? I'll probably never have room to hang these things again. Your Uncle George? No, mine. My Uncle George. He'd be your great uncle. Left them all with Mother when he went back to England. You know, he was quite famous, an RA. I never knew him. We both knew this place, apparently. This literal small backwater looked at long enough to memorize it, our years apart. How strange. And it's still loved, or its memory is. It must have changed a lot. Our visions coincided. Visions is too serious a word. Our looks, two looks. Art copying from life and life itself. Life and the memory of it. So compressed they've turned into each other. Which is which? Life and the memory of it. Cramped, dim, on a piece of Bristol board. Dim, but how live, how touching in detail. The little that we get for free, the little of our earthly trust, not much. About the size of our abidance along with theirs, the munching cows, the iris, crisp and shivering, the water still standing from spring freshets, the yet to be dismantled elms, the geese.
0: We took it all, we brought them to our land. That was beautifully read and the poem very, very nicely takes us from Bishop herself through these ideas of hidden treasures and memories to the notion of the archive, which is the focus of the book. So that's wonderful. Thank you. I'm, I'm fascinated by archives, but... I don't get the feeling everybody is. Since the much vaunted death of the author, there's been the move away from the idea that you could find answers to questions about literature by looking at dusty old manuscripts and documents. How would you respond? And do you think that there's actually a turn back towards the archive and towards the sort of authenticity of these preserved, hidden, treasured objects and and manuscripts in recent years?
1: Yes, I think there is a turn toward the archives and the interest in the uh, the creative process that can be found in the archives. It's not so much a search for origins here in old mm-hmm. manuscripts, but more of a understanding of the poet's workshop, which is really how I approach it. And yeah. it was interesting. I was on a webinar yesterday with some university presses and Charles. Watkinson at the University of Michigan Press was talking about the fact that people are really interested now, particularly in the digital environment, in the materials from the archives. So they're actually publishing a lot more books that not only make an argument, a literary argument Mm -hmm. about poets in their archives, but also demonstrate the materials that archivists and literary scholars have been working with. So I think there's a real interest Been a lot of conferences lately that have paid attention to the boundaries between literature and the archives. And there's a lot of collaborative work of archivists and literary scholars getting together and thinking about the archives together. So I think there's a definite move. Obviously, that's where my book comes in. Right.
0: (laughs) Yes. Exactly. (laughs) And it's part of the possibility that's opened up by the shift towards digital humanities.
1: Exactly. Yes. And it's such a rich environment in the digital environment, the way that we can represent the archives. It's tricky with Bishop because her work is in copyright and for our stress and Giroud, the publisher owns the copyright for her archives uh, What the materials in the archives that Bishop wrote. And so it is tricky when you're choosing those things to represent, you have to be careful to stay within fair use and to use pieces of it. So it's hard to represent full documents.
0: Yeah, I was reading that in your discussion, in your introduction, it does seem like a rather onerous burden to be placed on people who are studying poetry, to be very, very tightly constrained by those sort of limitations. Is that something that's particular to bishops yes. work or, or are there a large number of other 20th century poets who are in a similar kind of uh, publisher-imposed lockdown?
1: Uh, yeah, it's actually much worse in some areas, for example. Yeah. I mean, I've had a relatively good relationship with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and yes. that's not the most difficult one. Uh, the Plath Estate has been oh, yes. incredibly difficult. People, Many people have written about the difficulties of that, including myself. It can delay books, scholarly books, for, for years. And then, of course, the notorious one is the Joyce Estate. Indeed, <laughs> <Steve> <laughs> right. Joyce had a real iron grip on Joyce's papers. There were there were stories about. I mean, he burned some of the letters, and there are just all kinds of things going on there. I, as scholars, we don't make any money on our books, and um, no, and we're showing materials that make a scholarly argument and support what you're saying, then you are within fair use guidelines. But, but it's hard because publishers err on the side of caution here. So when they're publishing scholarly books, sometimes they won't accept that
0: argument.
1: So yeah. Yeah. yes. So this is the difficulty we're in in representing the archives. But right. It's worth, it's worth fighting that battle, you know, as a scholar.
0: Now, I think reading your introduction helped me to think about that more, because I'm probably like a lot of people most familiar with uh, Janet Malcolm in the Freud archives, and oh, that particular yes. extraordinary saga, which is a, a slightly different order. But yes, in my day job as a political scientist, I realized I could be studying the micro-politics of <laughs> controlling archival territory. It's an alternative form of sovereignty and legitimacy. All these yeah. core political theory concepts <laughs> come into play. <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely yeah
0: yeah so what's elizabeth bishop's literary archive where is it and what's in it
1: well so the bulk of bishop's archive is at vassar but it's all over the place yes heard harvard has documents indiana university recently acquired the the letters that bishop wonderful letter these are just beautiful wonderful letters that bishop wrote in her teens to louise bradley her first yeah. epistolary lover, and then there are other papers in Nova Scotia. I mean, all over the place. And but Vassar has the largest bulk of the archives,
0: thirty five hundred pages of, right? Okay,
1: <laughs> it's yeah. huge. You know?
0: Yes. And have many people trawled through these many, many pages and boxes.
1: Yes, many many people. It's a very heavily used archive, which is one of the reasons why they. I, I mean, it's typical for archivists to um, move to surrogates for heavily used material. Yes. Yeah. And then the bit in the case of Vassar, because it came into Vassar archives in the '80s, um, they used photocopies, which they've continued to do, but they're really poor copies of of the archive itself. So you really have to ask to see original documents. But I mean, it's it's a place to start to use photocopies. But the whole thing has been photo copy then. That helps to preserve the original materials. There was also a theft that happened Yeah, on. Somebody stole a notebook, which is never yes. on purpose, so they really just kind of locked down that whole process after that for obvious reasons. But, you know, it is possible we, when we were working in the archives as part of the National Endowment for the Humanities seminar that I led at Vassar, which resulted in this book of the scholars that were working in the archives there also wrote most of the chapters for this book. And, and that was an incredible experience because once we worked through photocopies, uh, people were able to ask for original documents and work through them it's, it's really important i think to do that and the experience is quite different i mean you cannot get a sense of bishop yes. wild notebooks i mean they're just they're just a riot of collage right. <laughs> you just right. you, you don't get any experience of that by just looking at a photocopy
0: Right. No, I've experienced some of this from my own very preliminary ventures into archives at the University of Leeds and, and other places. But you started telling us about this project, which is terribly interesting. You took a whole bunch of people into these archives and produced this book. Maybe you could tell us something about the collaborative nature of that, of the venture that's behind this book and how it came to pass and how it all worked out.
1: Oh, yes, I would love to do that. One of my great ambitions as a scholar really at this stage in my life, because, you know, I'm I'm quite a senior scholar, and I've written books and edited books. and, And so I feel a real sense of wanting to give back to the profession and to other scholars as a mentor and also as a collaborator. And I I really think collaboration is a great way to approach the archives because it gives you so many voices and dimensions. I received a grant from the National Endowment for the humanities. Thank you very much. It's an incredible, mm-hmm. an incredible thing to have. Yes. And it was a big grant to support 16 scholars for three weeks in a seminar with me. Mm-hmm. And then every day having time, we worked out a rotation schedule with Vassar so that everybody had time every day to work in the archives on individual projects that we mm-hmm. were interested in. And so we met for a couple hours in the morning for the seminar to talk about archival issues and theoretical writing and also Bishop's work. Then the scholars would go into the archives and then the book came from that. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, spending three weeks together. Yes. We were living there uh, we were dining together. The scholars were living together. And we were talking about Bishop twenty four seven. People were writing and and thinking about Bishop, and a lot of friendships were made there too that have kept on. Uh, there were a number of poets that were part of this group, right? Yeah, and a number of them have gone on to do poetry readings together and invited each other to each other's campuses, and it's just it was a very very fruitful time. And I think book reflects. The, the way that this became a kind of dialogue about Bishop in the archives, to think really deeply about it, because how many, it, it's really, it's expensive to spend that much time in the archives. I had yes. never even done it before this. I mean, right. I had, of course, spent lots of time in the archives, but I got, you know, two days here and two days there. So this was the gift. <laughs> it was like a little utopia, you know?
0: Right, and I'm really interested in this idea of that project, From what I gathered, not all of the people that you brought into the project had actually spent a great deal of time in archives before. So what was it like for those who were novices, let's say, in the idea of archival research to encounter these original manuscripts and papers?
1: Yes, that's right. Several of the scholars there, a number of them had worked in archives at some level before, and we actually had an archivist in our group. Mm poet and archivist as well. But there were a couple of people who had never worked in archives before. And it was like magic. Uh, Elise Knorr, who wrote an incredible essay for the for Elizabeth Bishop in the literary archive on the letters between Alice Methfessel and Elizabeth Bishop that recently came into the archives. She was just in love. <laughs> that mm-hmm. means- it was wonderful to watch that happen because she right. felt suddenly that, yeah, I this is just, I, I just can't believe I'm doing that. You fall in love with it. It's this experience of process. And you know, Elise is also a really accomplished poet. She the the sort of deep dive into the creative process because Bishop's archive really reflects her creative process in a very significant way. That deep dive for her was eye opening as a poet and writer and scholar. So it was amazing to watch. So and everybody got the bug. I mean, it's like my students. You know, I used to work with my students in the archives as well at Williams. And not everybody gets the bug, but lots of people do. And it's sort of, I just want to spend my time in the archives. Isn't this cool?
0: Yes. I mean, actually, as an undergraduate student, I wandered into some archival materials in the British Library, then housed in the British Museum in London. And uh, yeah, I was quite astounded by that. I think it's made a lasting impression on me to this day. And I do wish that more people could have that sort of opportunity. As I hinted earlier, a lot of people have this negative idea and archives used to be sort of forbidding as well. They were presided over by rather mean-spirited people and you understand why, because nobody wants stuff to disappear and stuff can disappear and their rules have to be enforced. But There's a very fine line between maintaining and preserving the collections and allowing access to them and it's a very, very difficult boundary to police.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: You've already mentioned one of the most powerful chapters of the book. Uh, there are 15 core chapters in the book, as well as your introduction, so we can't really talk about all of them. Would you like to tell us something about a couple of the chapters that really stand out for you?
1: Yes. Well, yes. I mean, so many. I mean, I think they're all wonderful. I... Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me just say, I used several of the chapters from this book when I taught the Elizabeth Bishop seminar at Williams. One of the chapters that I think is particularly great for teaching is Heather Tressler's the first chapter of the book, which mm-hmm. talks about Elizabeth Bishop's. She she mentions a variety of texts, so it's a really nice way of putting together materials from the archive and thinking about a single issue, which is the scene of reading in Bishop. There are many poems that involve the speaker of the poem reading through something. One of the most famous examples, of course, is in the waiting room. A lot of people know that poem where she's reading where the child, Elizabeth, is in the dentist's waiting room reading the National Geographic. And then there's over 2,000 illustrations and a complete concordance where the speaker is reading the family Bible. And Heather talked about this as an is a really important nexus of issues, emotions, childhood memories sort of contained in that scene of reading, which go back to the recently discovered letters that Bishop wrote to her psychoanalyst in the late 40s and 1947, which have recently come into the archives. So she used that. Uh, she called it in an earlier article... Uh, a sort of ars poetica for Bishop, those letters. And so I like how she uses that to tease out ideas and images, the scene of reading in Bishop is really well done. And the other thing I would mention is, I mean, there's so many.
0: <laughs> Maybe I can just jump in there. So yes, I'm looking at that chapter now. And it's, oh, right. it's an incredible pleasure on my iPad to be able to look at this typed original text of In the Waiting Room and then just blow it up to see Bishop's annotations in smudgy black ink where she's crossed out words and moved them around and that because you have this open access digital format, yes. that what's really in the archives is so accessible. it's almost as though it's on my desk. Uh, that's a, just a, a fabulous thing to find in a book.
1: Yeah and, and of course you know we have some representation of the drafts as well as yes. Bishop drafts through these things. So there are lots of archival documents there. Laura Patterson's piece is very cool. She looks at Bishop's notebooks, which are mm-hmm. amazing. And one of the things I did in my class was to assign students to keep a writer's notebook throughout the semester, which actually became an incredible document, developing document. When we went into lockdown, <laughs> you know, I
0: right. Sort of, right.
1: Because they were both writing about Bishop, but also their personal responses to what was happening. And it was all colored by Bishop. But anyway, I asked them to do that. And I had showed them examples from her notebooks. And we had some artists in the class and they made just beautiful notebooks between writing and poetry and art and, and all of those things. And Laura reads the notebooks and using her article in class is really useful too, because it helps us to think about not only ways of teaching the material as scholars, but also it's it's a great example of she reads these notebooks, Mm -hmm. particularly memories, moments of what she calls visual overload in the notebooks yes. <laughs> and and at those points of visual overload in the notebooks are points of the most productivity around questions that eventually find their way into the poetry and i thought that was brilliant actually it's a quite a compelling argument and she also talks about historical context so she really recreates something of bishop's world because you know the newspapers were uh, paper material. I mean, it's very archival. You know, it was everywhere. And the the walls of the outhouse were papers, yes. newspapers, and they were in various rooms in Nova Scotia. Would have had newspapers on the walls. So Bishop lived in a collage.
0: Again, I'm looking at the chapter now. Notebooks doesn't quite sum it up, does it really? Because no. a lot of what's going on is this, as you say, collage of newspaper clippings of things. There may be only a handful of, of words, or in some cases almost none in Bishop's writing. It's this pasting together of things. So in her archive is her own archive, and she's sort of archiving her own life or her own ideas as she's going along, which makes it think it's working on a lot of levels but that way
1: yeah and laura uh calls it scrapbooking too you yes know, i mean it's part of that tradition that people right do. yeah right and they didn't know i mean i love this little detail. one cent newspapers came in in the 1830s and so they they gradually just accumulated in people's houses and people right. didn't know what to do with them so yep. They're papering walls with them and making scrapbooks. So, you know, this is really, I mean, on a visceral level, on a mm-hmm. material level, when we're talking about the archives, this was Bishop's world, so different from our own. I think she recreates that very well.
0: No, I think I think that's fabulous. Are there lessons, inspirations that we can take away from your project and from the way this book has been put together that we could apply to studying Other writers, or even people who aren't writers, but people who have archives.
1: I really wanted to provide a model Mm -hmm. of scholarship here in this book. This is how we could do it. Yes. um, And create a sense of community around scholarship and a sense of dialogue and collaboration that's even more possible in kind of digital environment that we live in we we can we can communicate with each other right <laughs> and so i really wanted this to be a model for scholarship and to think about scholarly community and also teaching and And learning in this kind of environment, thinking about poets' literary archives. I mean, Bishops is a good example. It's a case study for archival research, but there's so many other literary archives where you could do this kind of work and really open things up to fresh approaches to the writer and also just a kind of exciting environment of collaborative scholarship in the humanities, extending that to the idea of the digital humanities, which gives us many opportunities now.
0: Yes, I think... Seeing your book and, and reading these chapters really helps. I've been struggling for a long time to understand exactly what digital humanities is, to be quite <laughs> honest. But after seeing your book, I think I could really imagine all sorts of things that could be done. Perhaps archivists around the globe will be quaking in their boots at the thought of these groups of students, scholars, poets, or whoever descending upon their, their storage boxes imminently. But you can imagine all sorts of collaborative projects that take a particular archive and try to do something with them, perhaps not exactly the way that you have, but some variations on these themes. It's really a marvelous idea. Thank you. Bethany, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the New Books Network. I hope we've boosted interest in your fantastic book, in Elizabeth Bishop's work, and also in the possibilities that lie hidden in the literary archives.
1: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this book, and, and it was just such a pleasure to talk to you, Duncan.
0: Okay. It's been my great pleasure too. I'm Duncan Macargo. I've been in conversation with Bethany Hickok of Williams College, whose book Elizabeth Bishop and the Literary Archive is available through open access from Lever Press. So you can download it right now free of charge. You've been listening to the New Books Network Literature Channel.